This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 20, Violence and the Sacred, Rene Girard. Today's is a little bit dark, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just a, a little trigger warning. It's a little bit dark. Um, I'll try to take you through it, you know, as gently as I can. Um, so lecturing on Rene Girard is actually a kind of nostalgic lecture for me because while I, w I was born too late to have ever been a Marxist um, and probably a little bit too late to have ever really been a Freudian, although I definitely have Freudian leadings, I really did go through a period as an undergraduate of being a very convinced Girardian, you know, of really feeling like I was inside that world and I was really seeing the world through those lenses. Now, I was an undergraduate at Stanford in the 1990s, and that's where Gerard was. That's where he was at the end of his career. That's where he was before he died. And so there was a circle of people around him, and then there were people coming from other countries and other places to study with him. And it had a, this was all pre-internet, um, when you couldn't just like communicate with other people from all over the place online. And so the people actually kind of coming, making these pilgrimages to study with Gerard had a much more intensive cult-like feeling than it does today, where if you're interested in hearing what anybody has to say, you can just Google them online and listen to some lectures. But at that time, you know, there was a seminar room in this old building, and it was a private invitation seminar, and there would be, everybody would be gathered around this table, and Gerard would speak with this voice that had a kind of ominous gravitas to it. Um, I'm not going to speak with a voice that has ominous gravitas. I'm just, you're going to get this in my, but imagine that um, there, there's Gerard with some ominous gravity. The first time I, I saw him in person, I found him absolutely terrifying. Um, okay, um, I'm going to start, though. I mean, I encountered Gerard as a 19-year-old with no context. It kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I'm going to give him to you as somebody whose thought comes out of a dialogue with Levi-Strauss and structuralism, which is a kind of much different path. I just kind of found him um, in a class at Stanford with no preliminaries or no context for where he was coming from. But I'm going to take you, I'm going to spend a couple minutes sort of reviewing the key points about structuralism um, and I want to give you a sense of how he, in many ways, is a structuralist and comes out of this dialogue with Levi-Strauss. Um, so remember the thing, I'm going to try to sit down so I don't walk around too much, um, which apparently makes the videos better if I don't walk around too much. Um, the point I want you to have in your mind about structuralism, which again will seem obvious, but if you just kind of let it sit there for a while, it will take on ever more layers of meaning. The idea that meaning is not imminent, it's not intrinsic, it is only relational. You know, words signify because they are not other words, because they have a relationship to other signifiers. So meaning is not imminent, it's not intrinsic, but it is stable. The stability comes from the, fact, the synchronic interdependence of a given language, of a given system. So now we're back to Hegel's need for wholeness, but without the Geist and without the telos, without the moving through time. Now the wholeness is a synchronic wholeness. We're on the axis of simultaneity. 
Um, and so we're going to go back, we're going to follow Levi-Strauss. Culture is a system of signs that can be understood by analogy with language. In structuralism, basically, everything is an analogy to language, to how language functions. Um, and like Marx and Freud, and like Cesar and Levi-Strauss, Girard is going to present us with a certain version of structuralism in which meaning is going to be relational. The parts of his system have meaning in relation to the other parts. The meaning is context-dependent. It's not absolute. It doesn't exist if extricated from the system. So if you take the word cat, I'm obsessed with cats because we, our family just adopted its first ever cat, which is a big topic. Um, if you take the word cat out of that, that combination of sounds out of the system of the English language, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't signify anymore. It signifies only within the context of a system. Um, so this idea that meaning is context independent, meaning is relational. Now this is then going to beg a question is there such a thing as a reality, a meaningful reality that is anterior to the structure? Is there a kind of meaning behind the structure? And again, just put that in your head and like let it percolate there for a while, and I think that in the next couple weeks will kind of flesh itself out for you. Okay. Um, Girard is going to be a new version of structuralism. Um, we're, we're going to be looking at these objective structures, so-called objective structures of reality that transcend any individual consciousness. So meaning is not produced by the subject, by the self, by the I. Um, there's also going to be an emphasis on the unconscious. Um, and this is also, you get a lot of Freudian influence here. Um, like Marx, the thing about Girard that is so seductive is totality. Totality in a way that is, is beyond what you get from Cesar or what you get from Levi-Strauss. When you are inside this system of thought, it purports to explain everything. And so the seduction of it is that it's like you've suddenly put on glasses, you know, and the hidden secrets of the world are revealed to you. You know, and that's what was so seductive for me when I, as a 19-year-old, kind of encountered Girardian theory. Suddenly you see things you didn't see before. It's like the, the darkness at the, and the, the secrets at the foundation of the universe are revealing themselves to you. And so while I never had that experience reading Marx, I mean, I, I was born too late. It was already like the moment for really making that leap of faith and believing in Marxism was over. But having gone through this Girardian period really helped me to empathize with and understand a lot of the Marxists who I would then go on to write about the East European thinkers you know, what it meant to encounter something in which suddenly everything fits together and makes sense and hidden meaning is revealed. Um, okay, so we're going to move, I'm going to move you from Levi-Strauss to Girard today. Later when we talk about Derrida, Derrida is also going to like, come into his own ideas through a dialogue and critique of Levi-Strauss. But here I want you to understand that the relationship between Levi-Strauss and Girard is a bit analogous to the relationship between Husserl and Heidegger. 
in that, you know, Levi-Strauss has more of a kind of scientific neutrality in his attitude towards what he's describing. And with Girard, we kind of shift into a minor key to this kind of fleshier feeling that we are probing the darkness at the heart of human existence. Um, you'll see analogies to Freud's idea that civilization is built on the repression of aggression, civilization and its discontents. The precondition for civilization is repression. To, you'll see an analogy there as we go, move into Girard's idea, which we'll get to in the second half of the lecture, on how civilization is built on actual violent sacrifice. Um, okay, so let me take you back to, to Levi-Strauss and then try to work you through um, where Girard breaks. So he's, you know, Levi-Strauss is trying to uncover the deep workings of a cultural system. Um, he believes, like Freud, that much of culture functions at the level of the unconscious, that culture is very expansive. It's a capacious definition of culture. Tools, institutions, customs, beliefs, art, laws, literature, knowledge. And that other things, like myths, like kinship systems, like ways of preparing food, can be understood on the model of how we understand a language. Um, so for him, kinship relations, and we talked about last week, are, are structured like Sassori's system of signs whose units have value only in the coordination of, of mutual differences. So now I'm going to kind of focus you on Levi-Strauss's work on myth, which I know we haven't really read the primary sources here, um, which I would happily give you if anybody wants more of them. I try to avoid giving you too many texts in any given week. Um, He's going to do a structuralist analysis of myth, and he's going to say that, you know, myths are basically have a kind of universal structures, a universal grammar, and they are variations on a number of universal themes as they appear in all sorts of radically different cultures. And remember, Levi-Strauss is an anthropologist. He spends lots of time hanging out with indigenous tribes, working with oral cultures, you know, living in the Amazon, you know, doing things, like really like looking at cultures that are very far removed from Paris, very far removed from like the cafes in France where the intellectuals hang out. And he's saying there are these universal things that are covering all of these different civilizations. And one of the things, and for our purposes, really the most important one today, is he says that myths tend to begin with a state of crisis um, an explanation for a state of crisis in a given society, and that that crisis tends to be what he will describe as a crisis of differentiation. The word differentiation is key here. Again, another one of these words that seems like banal, common, everyday, that has a kind of philosophical oomph in these systems. Crisis of differentiation. Um, so what is a crisis of differentiation? It is not a crisis when there is too much difference. It's a crisis when there is too little, when boundaries start getting blurred, when hierarchies start breaking down, when distinctions between sacred and profane, night and day, sun and moon, animal and beast, when distinctions between, you know, 
the, the aristocracy and the peasantry, when distinctions among groups, when those, those distinctions that essentially function as the skeleton supporting structure, when they start getting effaced and the boundaries get blurry. Now this often feels very counterintuitive. Like we often think that it's when there's too much difference you know, that society enters crisis. And Levi-Strauss is going to argue that no, it's actually difference is the skeleton that holds culture together, that holds societal structures together when, when people and things know their place. And when those boundaries get effaced, that's when you have anxiety, that's when you have cultural anxiety. And so that myths tend to begin with this crisis of a lack of differentiation, you know, often with a, a lack of differentiation between sacred and profane, between mortals and gods. And then everything else is kind of a variation on, you know, mortals and gods. Um, okay, so the grammar myths, myths tend to have, you know, a, a series of, of, of function by using various units, which he calls myth themes, which can be combined with a diff in different ways into different variations on themes. He's saying that there's this good grammar that puts together myths is a certain kind of universal grammar, drawing on universal unconscious, you know, mental habits, um, and that this grammar is basically inherent in the human mind. Um, kind of hardwired, misfunction the stories that they tell as devices for organizing and classifying reality. You know, and that humans don't actually function very well when everything is chaotic and mixed up. There's a constant attempt to organize and classify reality. He understands myths as imaginary resolutions of real social conflicts and contradictions. Okay. Um, so, Again, I want to point out here that we're, we're in a world that is antithetical to Husserl's world and that you know, for Husserl, the transcendental ego is going to be the fountain of all meaning, the relationship between the transcendental ego and the object. Um, in contrast, we are moving the subject radically to the side here. You know, myths are the ones, the agency is not coming from any given eye here. It's as if the agency is coming from the structure and its, the, its pieces themselves. So I'm going to read you this quote by the Marxist literary critic of structuralism, Terry Eagleton, um, who is, I, I think I've referenced that book on your, on your handout. If you want more secondary source background reading, Terry Eagleton is very sarcastic, very ironic, very partisan, but also extremely clear. So if you feel like you, know, you want more background on psychoanalysis, you want another reading of phenomenology or structuralism, he, very clear. So he says, he says, the mind which does all this thinking is not that of the individual subject. Myths think themselves through people rather than vice versa. They have no origin in a particular consciousness and no particular end in view. One result of structuralism then is the decentering of the individual subject, who is no longer to be regarded as the source or end of meaning. Myths have a quasi-objective collective existence, unfold their own concrete logic with supreme disregard for the vagaries of individual thought, and reduce any particular consciousness to a mere function of themselves. So agency is being relocated here in the structure itself and in this grammar. Okay. Okay, I'm now going to take you through Girard, who is going to kind of, who has a quite elaborate 
And at moments it will seem kind of trippy and far out and ridiculous, but at other moments it will seem uncannily on point. <laughs> you just have to accept all those moments as they've gone through. Um, it's a two-part model. You know, and the combining the parts is also a, a moment where that's a little philosophically tricky. Um, he begins with literature and moves on to cultural anthropology. Um, I gave you at the very beginning of the course a general distinction between thinkers who take apart systems and thinkers who create systems. Girard is a thinker who creates a system, like Hegel, like Marx. Um, okay. Um, so he, he's going to like start out in dialogue with Levi-Strauss, which I'll get to in a few minutes, accepting the classic structuralist premise that culture functions not through a specific agency on the part of a given subjectivity, but rather through structural dynamics. Um, when you're inside his model, it will purport to explain everything. And unlike Levi-Strauss, and this is going to be his real point of breaking, there's going to be an anterior reality. There's going to be another level. There's going to be a kind of penetrating to, to the ding on zick, to use a Kantian analogy. Um, and his frustration with Levi-Strauss essentially comes down to that inability of Levi-Strauss's structuralism, if we go on with the Kantian analogy, to reach the thing itself, to get beyond the phenomenon, the thing as it appears to us, and reach the thing itself. Um, he's going to say that Levi-Strauss strays too far from the real questions of human existence, which is Heidegger's frustration with Husserl, that he has strayed too far from being, from life. And so this is also where you get the relationship between Levi-Strauss and Girard is a bit analogous to the relationship between Husserl and Heidegger. Girard feels like we've become too cut off from life. And remember, I left you at the end of the lecture on structural anthropologism with Clifford Geertz's critique that Levi-Strauss is not interested in actual men. It's this man as such with whom he is, he is enthralled. Um, Okay, so that's going to that's be the heart of Girard's um, critique. And I'll, I'll read you a quote from, from Girard's book, Things Hidden from the Foundation of the World, which it's one of his later books. It's written in conversation, but it actually might be the best one to start with if you feel like delving into Girard. And he says that for Levi-Strauss, cultural phenomenon are like languages in that they are composed of signs that signify nothing if isolated from one another. Signs signify by means of other signs. They form systems endowed with internal coherence. Symbolic forms should be deciphered from within. We must limit ourselves to the reading of symbolic forms, Levi-Strauss tells us. Meaning must be sought where it resides and not elsewhere. And Girard's going to feel like that's too superficial. Like you've got to penetrate back through the structure to get to the thing that is underneath the signifiers playing with other signifiers. So he's going to have this longing, Gerard, to transcend form and get back to substance. He's going to want to analyze form and deduce structure and then get underneath it. If you can actually think about his getting underneath it. To ask these big questions about the destiny and the fate of man. Um, he's also going to be thinking at a time contemporaneously to Foucault, to Derrida, where he is getting nervous about what will become the postmodernist premise that maybe there is no such thing as a subject. Maybe after God's death, we have the death of man. Um, 
So he's going to want to kind of go underneath and get at the real human signified beneath the play of signifiers. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Now, now you guys are nodding. There were a lot of blank looks. I know it's that time of the semester where like people are full of blank looks, but okay. Okay. So there's, there's this two-part model now, and the two-part model can be broken down into the first part is about imitation. And the key word is going to be mimetic or imitative. And the second part is about substitution. Um, in which the key word is going to be scapegoat. Okay, the, the, f the first part, the first step, and in some ways the founding insight, which Girard is going to take from literature, he's going to be writing about Balzac, writing about Dostoevsky, writing about Shakespeare. Um, he's going to say the key thing is that desire is mimetic. The key phrase here is the mimetic nature of desire. Um, desire is not generated imminently. Yeah. We don't want something because that desire comes from ourselves. We want it because we are mimicking, we are imitating the desire of others. Now, you'll see analogies here also or things that hint at, you know, Heidegger's Das Mann Selbst, the conformist self. You know, so there's, there's an interpretation of this that can be close to that. But Girard is going to kind of put out a structural model. Actually, maybe, maybe I'll actually use the board here because it's a kind of triangular model. Okay, here we've got an object. That's going to be the object of desire. Here we have the subject. And here we have another subject who Gerard will call alternately the model or the mediator. Mediation, you'll recognize, is a Hegelian term. Um, okay, these are both subjects. And Gerard is going to say that Desire does not originate in the subject, and it does not originate in the object. It originates through an imitation of the model slash mediator. Well, it is that, it is that Im imitative mechanism that generates desire in us. And this, of course, is mutual, right? Desire is mimetic, and, and the mimetic nature of desire is mutual. Um, The momentum of the desire doesn't come from the object, which is relatively insignificant for Gerard. The momentum of that desire comes from the relationship between subject and mediator. Um, this is all going to be very technical for Gerard. So one subject is looking to this mediator as a representative of wholeness of the fulfillment of being, mimicking the other's desires, subsequently internalizing them. The point here is that human desire is mediated. Its object is determined not from within, but from without. This, by the way, is what inspired Peter Thiel. <laughs> um, which I know you're all going to kind of, 
you know, roll, roll your eyes here, but he looked at Facebook as it was coming into existence and realized, wow, that's where we should be, where advertising could skyrocket because people don't want things because they want them. They want them because they see other people wanting them. You know, the object is desirable, not because I want it, but because somebody else wants it and that makes me want it. Now, I can give you a better example than Peter Thiel on Facebook, which is a Silicon Valley world that you can read some interviews with him. He's actually a big Girardian, um, which is very interesting because you don't really think of those worlds going together, except that Girard was at Stanford before he died, which was Silicon Valley. So there's a contemporaneousness. Um, a better example, you put two children in a room with any number of toys, two toys, 10 toys, 100 toys, 1,000 toys. The only desirable toy is the one that the other child has in their hands at any given moment. You know, if you want to test this, you can pick any two kids, right? Put them in a room with any number of toys. When I had toddlers, this was tested every day. <laughs> the only desirable object is the one the other one has at any given moment. It is desirable because the other one has it. That's what makes it desirable, not because of what it is in itself. It doesn't matter how many other desirable toys you throw in the room. You know, the desire is coming from the other's desire. Okay, so this is a triangular model of desire. You know, and what Girard says then is that this, what you then have is a competition, especially when the object is of a finite nature when the object is somehow limited. And so what, what is mimetic desire then escalates into mimetic rivalry, which will then escalate if uninhibited into mimetic violence. So you have kind of three stages that blend into each other, but it's all about the imitation. Um, I, I taught this phrase to my kids very early because I was tearing my hair out about like the toy issue, like whatever toy the other one had was the toy that you know, everybody needed to have. Um, and so I taught them that, you know, can't you just recognize this is the mimetic nature of desire and that we can like go on. And when my, my son was in first grade um, going to an, an Episcopal private school in New Haven, and this lovely young chaplain was talking to them about like the world and during Jesus's life and what it was like in Jerusalem and this and that. Um, and I was talking to him at parents' night and he said, Marcy, and then your son came to me and said, but that's just the mimetic nature of desire. <laughs> And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I can explain what that means. He's like, no, it's okay, Caleb already explained it. <laughs> now it's in my vocabulary. Um, maybe I'll tell you one more short anecdote. So there, there was a, there was a, my, so if when you have a baby, if you guys have babies, you'll see people give you stuffed animals, enormous numbers of stuffed animals. Everybody gives you a stuffed animal, so your house fills up with stuffed animals. Um, and when my, my son was a baby, um, a, a Polish friend who was visiting here brought this stuffed cat, which was a kind of like very modest, like flat-like stuffed cat, which could double as a pillow, was very easily packable. So while we had thousands of stuffed animals, the stuffed cat was the one we always traveled with. Um, 
is it was kind of particularly convenient and could be flattened. It was, um, and then, <laughs> and then I had a second child, um, and then when you know she was a baby and my son was two and a half, three, we were traveling. We, we were traveling. We were in Austria, I guess it was, and she was teething and having trouble sleeping. And the only thing she what, that would make her go to sleep was the stuffed cat, who of course was the same stuffed cat that my son wanted to sleep with because that was his stuffed cat, you know, and no any no other stuffed animal could possibly and I was exhausted because like I was getting up every two hours because nobody was sleeping and there was a fight every single night about who was going to get to sleep with the cat in a negotiation and so I, I looked at the tag on this cat thinking there's got to be another way to get a cat right like there's got to be another way to get this cat so I like I look up the tag and then I start googling it you know and it turns out this is like not a big stuffed animal company it turns out there's basically like two or three women in a neighborhood in Warsaw who make these stuffed cats you know so there's like and they have like a very modest kind of little website you know where they like talk about their like at home you know making of stuffed cat things um, and you could order them online but you had to have a Polish credit card at this time which I of course didn't have and I was so exhausted and so strung out that I send in this like hysterical, clearly like quirky Polish, this long message about like my friend Anya and the cat and the traveling and the second child and how I couldn't sleep and how I had these deadlines and the screaming and like, I'm like, is there anything I can do to somehow pay you to get you to send me in another country another one of these stuffed cats? Um, I must have sounded like a total lunatic. Like, you know, first of all, like not that many people speak non-native Polish. And then I send this like hysterical melodramatic email about like the stuffed cat. And then I get this email back from this woman like right away. She's like, oh my God, you're Marcy Shore. I've read your books and you wrote to me. I'm so honored. And I thought, oh no. Okay, now it's going to be spread all over Poland that I'm in fact a lunatic. I was thinking I was just some anonymous person, like, you know, with this plea for the stuffed cat. Anyway, mimetic, you will now never forget the mimetic nature of desire, because you'll remember the stuffed cat story. Okay. Okay. What happens then is this escalates. This escalates into mimetic rivalry. Um, what Girard calls the scandal, which is a technical term for Girard, is that the mediator is simultaneously the obstacle. So precisely the one who is imitated and in some way admired and looked up to is also hated for being the obstacle to, to the object. So there's a kind of sadomasochistic relationship going on here be between subject and mediator. And, and you, there are kind of analogies here to Hegel's master-slave dialectic. Um, this kind of sadomasochistic relationship, only a subject can provide recognition, but the master has relegated the slave to object status, to denying the recognition of the slave subjectivity, therefore there's a bind. There's an analogous bind here. You know, the bind is that you're kind of loving and hating the model. Now, what causes this to be better or worse is what Gerard calls internal versus external. Um, mediation, which again exists on a kind of continuum. So internal mediation has to do with situations in which there are no strict boundaries between subject and mediator. So, oh, there's no great social distance keeping them in different categories. So for instance, think about two two-year-olds in a room versus a two-year-old and a 10-year-old. The greater the age difference, the less the fighting. 
because once once you get when there enough distance enough social distance again we go back to the problem of differentiation between subject and mediator effectively acts as a constraint on mimetic conflict on mimetic rivalry so when people are kind of kept in their own places when those distinctions hold that inhibits this escalation um, internal mediation is coming about when these differences between subject and mediator are sufficiently collapsed so that this mimetic, this mimetic rivalry into mimetic violence can escalate without inhibition. And so you see things like how the, the decline of, of the nobility um, and social mobility, the decline of certain traditional social classes allowed for more uninhibited, uninhibited mimetic conflict. Because for instance, you, you, if, if you had a, a noble who was falling in love with the same woman as a serf, they weren't really going to compete because the distance between them was too great. There were social breaks, there were social boundaries that kept certain categories apart and distinct that could act as a kind of restraint. But when those boundaries break down and everyone's competing for everything, you know, then, then you have a situation that can more easily um, escalate into mimetic violence. And because it's an imitative mechanism, it becomes mutual. And so it all becomes kind of identical in which everybody is both playing roles of both subject and both mediator. Um, and this kind of reciprocal violence then acts further to erase differences. Um, this absence of differentiation is always going to be a crisis. So this, this idea that the Girardian theologian Robert Hamilton Kelly kept describing as differentiation is culture supporting skeleton. It's what holds things in place. Um, it's a structuralist premise. Again, differentiation holds meaning in place. When differentiation breaks down, then this mimetic conflict escalates. Okay. Um, the importance of the object itself tends to dissipate entirely. All of the energy is focused on mimetic conflict, on mimetic rivalry. The violence of subject against mediator becomes dominant. The desire to possess what the other desires can easily become the desire to become the other. Again, you see echoes of, of uh, Levinas here. Desire is the desire for the absolutely other. And this chaos and violence then leads us to what Girard will call a kind of mimetic sacrificial crisis. So now we have the word sacrifice. Now we're coming into the second part of the model. Um, and I'll, I'll read you a quote here. The sacrificial crisis, he says, can be defined, therefore, as a crisis of distinctions. That is, a crisis affecting the cultural order. This cultural order is nothing more than a regulated system of distinctions in which the differences among individuals are used to establish their identity and their mutual relationships. I have these quotes on your handout, so you don't have to worry about you know, transcribing them as I'm writing. Um, okay, now we get to the second, which is the kind of more trippy part of the model, because Girard says that this crisis, this kind of violence is only resolved when there is the expulsion um, of a scapegoat, the sacrifice of a scapegoat. It's only resolved when both parties diverting their attention from one another instead turn their attention to a scapegoat. Um, the scapegoat is, he will, he will call, a surrogate victim. 
sometimes a sacrificial victim, sometimes a surrogate victim, um, usually uses the word scapegoat. The word surrogate meaning substitute. Um, the surrogate victim is spontaneously expelled. The act of the sacrifice of the victim uni unites and unifies all parties against the victim and consequently acts as a cleansing mechanism that enables order to be restored. Again, this seems wild, but then there are certain historical situations when it seems uncannily on point. Um, think about the burning of witches in the early modern period the burning of the witches as the heretics. Um, think about lynchings in the South, the sudden orgy of violence coalesced against a victim. Um, think about the Stalinist show trials, what Kundera was talking about. Suddenly, you know, they are trying Rudolf Slonsky, they're trying Milada Harakova. Um, people are storming out into the streets and shouting, death to the fascists, death to the imperialists, death to the traitors, the workers demand death. This, the, the mob coalescing against the victim. It's a dynamic, it's a sociological dynamic. It's the reason why you know, in 2015 and 2016, when we started watching footage of Trump rallies and people were shouting, lock her up, lock her up, or send her back, send her back, and you just feel sick because you think, okay, like, anthropologically, we know what this is. Like, anthropologically, that's a moment, that's a type. You get everybody united, you get all of their anger, all of their rivalry, everything is projected. Everything is projected onto the scapegoat. Uh, okay. Solidarity for Girard requires an enemy. You know, it's all of this violence that is in us that is being projected onto a surrogate enemy, a symbolic enemy. The impulse is not just to destroy the scapegoat, it's also a cleansing impulse. We talk about, about, about Stalinist terror, we talk about purges. This purging impulse, this cleansing impulse, to, that society wants to cleanse itself of what it feels at that moment is the source of all its violence and disorder. And so I'll, I'll read you another couple Gerard quotes. So Gerard says, the victim is a scapegoat. Scapegoat indicates both the innocence of the victims, the collective polarization in opposition to them, and the collective end result of that polarization. The persecutors are caught up in the logic of the representation of persecution from a persecutor's standpoint, and they cannot break away. So there's a transcendence of the rational that comes in this, these moments. Terrified as they are, he writes, by their own victim, they, the persecutors, see themselves as completely passive, purely reactive, totally controlled by this scapegoat at the very moment when they rush to his attack. They think all initiative comes from him. There is only room for a single cause in their field of vision, and its triumph is absolute. It absorbs all other causality. It is the scapegoat. So this projection of causality onto the scapegoat. And Girard writes about this in this very dramatic way. He says, this is the truly gripping moment at which civilization is founded, this expulsion. You know, that involves a kind of orgy of bloodlust, you know, a unification, a cleansing of society, you know, a, a, a sudden 
transcendence of violence into a realm that is attributed to being outside of human control. He says this is the gripping moment. This is the moment of drama. The experience, he says, of a supremely evil and then beneficent, because dead being, whose appearance and disappearance are punctuated by collective murder, cannot fail to be literally gripping. So this purging of the victim then leads to calm. Then there's a moment of liberation from tensions, from suspicions, the sense of society having emptied itself of poisons, a reconciliation, a peace, a unanimity that comes from having projected and expelled all of this toxic emotion onto, onto the scapegoat. Now, what Girard says is the fundamental misattribution is the misattribution by which the mob, and he's also using the mob in a slightly different way from the way Arendt does, but the mob transfers its own violence from itself and projects it onto the victim. Violence is attributed to the victim. Um, so in contrast to Freud here, the violence is not repressed and sent into the psychic closet of the unconscious. The violence is passed off onto the surrogate victim. It's transferred onto, it's projected onto. So the victim is then identified as having been the cause of violence, an attribution that is proven retrospectively and reinforced by an inverse logic. Because if it's the victim's murder that brings peace, then it must have been the victim's former existence that caused all the turmoil, that caused violence and disorder. There is only one person, Gerard writes, who, responsible for everything, one who is absolutely responsible, and he will be responsible for the cure because he is also responsible for the sickness. Now this is what Gerard will call double transference. Um, he'll also use the Greek word pharmakos, which is then picked up by Derrida, which basically means both poison and remedy. The scapegoat functions as both the poison and the remedy for a society thrown into chaos by mimetic violence, both the cause of chaos and the cause of order is projected onto the victim. Yeah, onto the victim is attributed having been the cause of the previous disorder and having been the cause of the current order. Thus, the victim, although originally chosen largely arbitrarily, acquires a kind of mystical potency which enables the victim to kind of merge into and be transformed into the sacred, with a capital S, which is also a kind of technical term for Girard that, that falls into a kind of godlike role. And this is the part that, that's, I think, hardest to get one's mind around. Uh, let, me, let me read you a passage by Robert Hamilton Kelly, who is one of his most articulate and lucid interpreters, who is a theologian. Um, and he says about this moment, he says, the double transference is the primal misunderstanding by which the mob misidentifies the causes of its disorder and its unanimity. The cause of disorder is in fact mimetic rivalry, and the cause of peace is the coalescence of that rivalry against the victim. The appearance of the victim catalyzed the coalescence, but the mob's own mimetic rivalry caused it. Thus, the victim is at most a catalyst and at least only the passive object of the violence. He or she is not the cause. The mob, however, makes the victim the cause. 
and by doing so obscures its own violence from itself and transfers it to the victim. The first illusion is the illusion of the supremely active and all-powerful victim. It makes the victim a god, placing him or her above the group as a transcendent cause of both order and disorder. So this kind of making the victim of a god, the double transference, the projecting of these magical qualities onto the victim. Um, so if the reign of the victims was the poison that generated the conflict, the sacrifice has the power of remedy, this transcendent antidote for all ills, this is what allows the victim to be worshipped almost as a god. So the sacred that involves this transformation of the scapegoat into the sacred. Um, what it really is, is the personification and reification of the mob's violence through the victims. And now, and Girard is going to make this elaborate argument then about how violence passes from the mob through the victim and returns to the, re returns to the mob in the form of culture, including religion. Um, he will then define the sacred as the sum of human assumptions resulting from collective transferences focused on a reconciliatory victim at the conclusion of a mimetic crisis. So this sacred order then comes about through this murder of the scapegoat. Um, and then returns to the mob in the form of culture. There are three main aspects of culture that Gerard stresses in this model that then sustain the order that has been founded on this murder. They are ritual, prohibition, and myth. Um, prohibitions are designed to be both normative and negatively prescriptive. They are aimed to prevent mimetic conflict. They tend to be related to objects that cannot be divided peacefully. They tend to be prohibitions that keep people in categories that maintain differences between sacred and profane, between social classes, um, that, that control objects that cannot be divided peacefully, be they women or children or objects. Okay. Um, ritual is the positive counterpart to prohibition. Things that you have to do. Rituals tend to allude to or in various ways reenact the original sacrifice of the scapegoat in a controlled or prescribed fashion. There might be ritual sacrifices of animals. There might be symbolic burnings of things. There might be May Day parades. They're reinforcing the legitimacy of the sacrifices made and reinforcing the cultural order that has arisen from them. Myths are the most important part, are the most important of these three-pronged um, cultural mechanisms for our purpose. And Girard's critique, um, he says that, like Levi-Strauss, he sees mythology as bringing into being differential thought after a moment of a crisis of differentiation. But Girard says that Levi-Strauss stays at the level of signifiers playing off other signifiers, and he doesn't get to the real victim beneath the myth. For Gerard, there is always a real victim beneath the myth. You know, the myth is not a thing unto itself. The myth 
is telling the story of a real victim and we can always get underneath it to the real sacrifice that was made. Gerard also has a much more specific definition of myth. This definition of myth for Gerard is the story of the murder of the scapegoat as told from the point of view of the murders. That is myth. You tell the story of the murder from the point of view of the murders in such a way as to sanctify it and to justify it. They serve misserves to justify and sanction any violence as having been necessary, as having been necessary in order to expel the bad violence. Okay, I have a whole two minutes left, so let me just tell you a couple things I want you to think about. I want you to really reflect about this crisis of differentiation because it comes up all the time. Um, it's one of the ways to think about the question of why Nazism originates and comes into power in Germany in particular. German Jews, by and large, in the 1930s did not constitute an obviously separate group, as they often did in Eastern Europe to the east. You know, we're not talking about Jews in Germany who tended to be living in a traditional way, speaking a different language, wearing black hats or long coats or separating themselves. The German Jewish community was, by and large, overwhelmingly assimilated, German-speaking indistinguishable indistinguishable from non-Jewish Germans. But if you look at it through a crisis of differentiation, you say this is where cultural anxiety comes from, when the differences, when assimilation happens, as opposed to a lack of assimilation. It's one way to understand persecution of the LGBT community or the anxiety about non-binary identity. Why is that anxiety provoking? You know, why is it? Well, well, Levi Strauss and Gerard would say it's precisely when, when differentiations get effaced that people get very nervous. Um, the reality reference for Gerard, and here is the idea I, I want to leave you with, is that there is a way to deconstruct myth and get to reality. The way in which you get to the reality underneath the myth, the way in which you get to truth, is you tell the story and grasp the story from the point of view of the victim. The reality reference for Gerard always lies with the victim. It says myths disclose, they reveal the truth. If you read them carefully, you know, if you invert them, if you see there is, a, there is a point in that myth that will give you access to truth, it's that the reality reference lies with the victim. Now, he is a, he's a deeply Catholic thinker, and his defense of and commitment to Christianity comes from this. He says, Christianity is where we break from this tradition by telling the story of the murder, in this case of Jesus Christ, from the point of view of the murdered. You identify with the victim. You identify with Jesus who becomes God through his murder. Um, but now you, Christianity is not telling the story from the point of view of those who hung him on the cross, but Christianity is telling the story from the point of view of Jesus. Um, the, we're back then, you see, to the death of God, but now it's not about the killing of God. Now it's not about God's absence, excuse me, it's precisely about the killing of God. The key moment is not that God is dead, the key moment is that we have killed him and identifying that we have killed him. 
Um, and Girard would say human beings are fundamentally irrational. Our own motives are hidden from ourselves. We have to work to deconstruct them, to uncover them. Um, culture is founded on sacrifice, but, and here's where he gives us the hope that Freud doesn't give us. Um, there is a way to move forward. There is a way to get beyond sacrifice. There is a way to get to truth. And that's by identifying with the victim. Okay, I will uh, leave you with that, and I'll uh, see you on Wednesday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.